England, 1642. Henrietta Maria was not a popular queen, but neither was her husband, King Charles I. Luck wasn't exactly on her side from the start. When she was still very young and already enjoying considerable esteem as an actress at the French court, she met her future husband, who just happened to be passing through France, on the way to marry the Princess of Spain, who was not expecting the proposal. The trip was a secret, but more on that later. When plans fell through, other arrangements were made, and so Henrietta was sent, at age 15, to marry King Charles I. She was, essentially, the backup spouse. Henrietta was extremely Catholic, which was not the denomination to be during this period of British history, when Protestantism was at its heyday and anti-Catholic puritanical sects were on the rise. Right out of the gate, the queen was forbidden to participate in the coronation process or be crowned as queen herself, and she was looked upon with suspicion by the British masses, whose memory of Spanish invasion and a plot by Catholic extremists to blow up Parliament were fresh in their memory. To make matters worse, King Charles, though ostensibly a committed Protestant, was fond of more of the traditional Catholic pageantry, which angered his Protestant subjects. Unable to speak English, or even write it, Henrietta was isolated from English life. She found the dreary, wet weather troublesome for her health, and no doubt her mental health as well. She and Charles, both strong-minded personalities, were initially quite frigid with each other. Yet, by all accounts, her marriage and relationship with Charles improved drastically, to the point that some considered her too much of an influence on the king, and domineering at best. Charles's father, the flamboyant, confusingly titled King James VI and I, had led a lavish lifestyle, so much that his spending virtually drained the royal coffers by the time Charles I came to power. He was not very great with money either, or perhaps it was his poor decision-making to blame for the drain on finances. Losing so many battles and rebellions began racking up the expenses, and there was funding for armies and navies to worry about. These debts snowballed, to the point that Charles needed to repeatedly go to Parliament to ask for cash. Now, Parliament wasn't exactly on good terms with the king, who was stubborn, believed firmly in the divine right of the monarchy, and was quick to dissolve Parliament whenever he didn't get his way. In a rather comedic sequence of events, history shows Charles going to Parliament, asking for money, ignoring their advice, and then dissolving them out of anger before immediately pissing off the Scottish or losing a rebellion, all of which were very costly things. Then, repeat. To make up for these losses, the king began shaking down common folk and nobles alike by implementing extremely unpopular fines and new laws, and many of those affected had actually been on his side initially. King Charles I was simply bad at reading the room. One day, after several disagreements with Parliament and failure to gain a payout, Charles took his best guards and marched into Parliament House demanding the arrest and likely execution of five leaders who he saw as the greatest barriers to his supreme rule. But by the time he got there, his malcontents were suspiciously absent. They'd been tipped off. When word got out about the king's power play, the public, as well as the nobility, went ballistic. This was just one in a series of events that would eventually lead to the English Civil War. Fearing for her safety, the king sent his wife, Henrietta Maria, to the Netherlands, in part for her protection and because she would likely be warmly received there, enough so that she could perhaps raise money for the royal cause back home. While on the surface her fundraising efforts were diplomatic, she and the king were far more desperate than those outside their tightly controlled circles even realized. 
Though none can for sure say whether or not it was the king's idea or her own, Henrietta found herself tasked with selling the family valuables. One day, she was led by the king to the treasury, the repository of Britain's most valuable and historic royal jewels. The king motioned to one in particular, a resplendent piece that she had laid eyes on before. Resting in a velvet case, the pendant was one of the most exquisite pieces of jewelry crafted in the last 300 years. Three blood-red spinels circling a rich blue diamond centerpiece, orbited by giant pearls, with gold to hold them all together. This was the crown's last resort, a priceless object that had once adorned King James's hat and Queen Elizabeth's collar, a pendant known as the Brethren, or the Three Brothers. The 14th century was a time for high art, and this extended to jewelry, though nobody save the nobility of Europe would really get to appreciate this art form. In 1389, John the Fearless of Burgundy commissioned the creation of a jewel from the Parisian gold worker Hermann Roysel. He would never see it, as he was assassinated by a rival noble, in part due to his failure to support France during their war with England. His son, Philip the Good, a certain duke with a questionable moniker, was not much better of a human being. The duke was primarily known for his power plays between the French and English, but most famously for capturing Joan of Arc and handing her over to the English to retain his territories. Despite not being the most ethical French royal in the Renaissance, he was a great patron of the arts, and commissioned paintings and tapestries all over the region. He also inherited his father's commissioned jewelry piece— which was described as a very fine and rich buckle adorned in the middle with a very big pointed diamond, and around this are three fine square ballast stones called the Three Brothers, and three sizable fine pearls in between these. Under this buckle hangs a very large fine pearl in the shape of a pear. Philip's dealings with the English and his dubious allegiances would eventually come home to bite him in the baguette when the town of Liege staged a rebellion against Burgundian rule with the help of the Swiss. Philip, who was aging, sent his son Charles the Bold out to battle for him. Charles was fond of wearing finery and carrying his loot onto the front lines, which sounds as stupid as it does in 2021 as it did in 1467, and you could probably guess what happened next. Charles and the Burgundian forces lost spectacularly, and the Swiss claimed their treasure for themselves, including, you guessed it, the three brothers. The jewel ended up in the hands of the magistrates in the Swiss town of Basel, who decided to keep it as a bit of a nest egg. The problem with keeping looted goods so close to the country you stole them from is that it tends to look a bit gauche if you try to wear them in public or pawn them off right under the nose of your neighbors. So the magistrates of Basel couldn't really do anything with the jewels until the heat died down. Forty years, apparently, was long enough. One of the clearest illustrations of the Three Brothers was painted in order to entice European nobility into buying the prized piece. Eventually, the highest bidder was the banking family known as the Fuggers. The jokes write themselves. 
They held on to it for half a century, until along came perhaps the biggest fugger of them all, King Henry VIII. In December of 1544, King Henry VIII, no doubt tired from beheading wives and thumbing his nose at the Catholic Church, decided to splurge for some new shiny pieces to add to his collection. The Fuggers were happy to oblige, and they sent along a short list of items that might catch the king's eye, including, allegedly, the three brothers. Unfortunately for the king, the Fuggers' jewel trader got cold feet crossing the English Channel, and the deal fell through. Or in any case, King Henry VIII died, leaving his young son, King Edward VI, on the throne. King Edward VI was a sickly king who presided over an unpopular reign, marked by religious turmoil and manipulative regents. He did live long enough to inherit the Three Brothers, which was finally sold to England in 1551. He would own it for exactly two years when he died in 1553. Edward VI had appointed his cousin, Lady Jane Grey, as the new ruler, but this didn't last long. Her moniker, the Nine Days Queen, should clue you in. She was deposed by Mary, who took over the throne and inherited the three brothers, which was bestowed upon her on September 20th, 1553, though she did not wear it during her coronation on October 1st. In another example of the name says it all, Bloody Mary's popularity did not last. A staunch and uncompromising Catholic, she had many Protestant leaders and innocents put to death in an attempt to reverse the course of the Reformation that had taken hold in England. The last straw came when she was arranged to marry Philip II of Spain. The idea of an English queen marrying a Catholic Spaniard proved so odious to the English population that it launched a rebellion, one that Elizabeth was partially blamed for, though historical evidence shows that she had no direct involvement. The English looked to Elizabeth as a viable alternative to the crown, and Mary went so far as to have her imprisoned. Eventually, popularity ran out, Mary proved unable to produce an heir, and the writing was on the wall. Her sister called her back to court, and there Elizabeth remained until she ascended to the throne, to much celebration on January 15, 1559, only several years after her brother's death. The 1550s was quite the decade to be English. It is under Elizabeth's rule, which is well-documented, that the three brothers became one of the more prominently worn jewels in the crown collection. It appears not only in two portraits of the revered queen, but also on her funerary statue in her tomb in Westminster Abbey. The jewel would then be passed down to another big English queen, King James I. In addition to his love of witch hunts, the Bible, and probably the same sex, James was also fond of the jewel, which he can be seen wearing as a very fancy hat pin in one of his royal portraits. In a letter to his son, James offered the following advice on how to best wear the piece. And I send for you, you are wearing the three brethren that you know full well, but newly set... And the mirror of France, the fellow of the Portugal diamond, which I would wish you to wear alone in your hat with a little black feather. And I'm sure Charles was like, sure, okay, dad. King James designated the jewel as inalienable from the crown collection. It was never to be sold. Unfortunately, his descendant had other ideas. It was during the 1620s that King Charles decided to wed the Spanish princess, having not learned from his relative that this was not a great idea. Supposedly, the three brothers was going to sweeten the deal, and Charles brought it with him on his adventure to Spain. We know, of course, now how that turned out. 
disastrously. Henrietta Maria was taken back to England as the bride instead, and during the years leading up to the Civil War, Charles sent her to the Netherlands for safety, and also to rake up some cash. There she was tasked with selling the jewel to the Dutch royal family. It had actually been once sold to them before, but resold back to England. To her and the English crown's embarrassment, she was unable to pawn the jewel off. In 1644, Henrietta Maria was sent to Paris, a city much more welcoming and familiar to her. The English Civil War, led by Oliver Cromwell, had drained King Charles dry. Here, in Paris, she was to sell many a jewel, including the three brothers. It was not an easy task. In addition to being quite ill and likely traumatized by events home, Henrietta Maria could not find a buyer who was willing to shell out that much money for property that might be easily seized by the British Parliament, the likely victors in the war at that time. The last thing the French upper class wanted to do was piss off a new leadership in England that they had never dealt with before. Worse for the exiled queen, the press had gotten word of her royal fire sale and decided to spin it into her trying to sell England's treasures for weaponry to assist in a religious upheaval, gossip that did not endear her to the folks back home. Now, this is where any conclusive evidence ends. In 1645, there is some documentation that she was finally able to sell a certain piece of jewelry for an embarrassingly low sum. The item was described as a pyramidal diamond, three ballast rubies, four pearls, with the addition of a table-cut diamond of 30 carats and two pointed diamonds. Now that's a near dead ringer for the three brothers, minus a few alterations. Personal speculation, but it is possible she may have gotten a trusted local jeweler to add some other pearls on hand to the piece, either to make it more of a hot commodity or the opposite to disguise its true nature, thereby ensuring that a potential buyer wouldn't be scared off by owning one of England's most famous crown jewels. Regardless, this is the last time in recorded history that we see the three brothers pass hands. It stands to reason that a jewel like that must have ended up somewhere, or it was picked apart and sold off piecemeal shortly after it passed out of royal control. Some believe it was sold to the French chief minister, or was sold to a lesser noble back in the Netherlands. A jewel called the Three Sisters was in possession of Frederick Henri, a Dutch prince. However, historians and jewelers do not think it is the altered version of the Three Brothers. An anecdotal and unverifiable source says that the Three Brothers was eventually sold to an American in the 18th century, but there is nothing to back this up. Armchair theorists suggest that the most likely outcome from the Three Brothers was that it was broken up and sold off piece by piece. Though the jewel would have been a coveted item at one point in history, after the English Civil War, it was unlikely any noble in Europe would want to be caught dead with something that would get them in trouble. Rather than become a very expensive game of hot potato around Europe, it would have behooved the exiled queen to take apart the jewel and sell its components off individually. Which is a bit of a sad thing to think about, but entirely possible. This would mean the three brothers are still out there in several forms, scattered to the winds. We will end on this anecdote from a Reddit user, with the very appropriately named handle, I'm not a crazy person. In a thread covering the disappearance of the three brothers, they speculate about the ultimate whereabouts of this once celebrated, then tarnished crown jewel. I remember a story from a friend of a friend a few years ago about going to the bank with parents at some point and seeing really old jewelry in the safety deposit box. Apparently the stuff had been passed down for generations and was being kept to sell should the family ever really need the money or leave the country. 
It wasn't likely to be some ancient lost piece of history, but I like to think some of those missing jewels and artifacts are sitting locked away in unclaimed safety deposit boxes or hidden vaults waiting to be discovered someday. It's an exciting theory, much more exciting than someone stole it and melted it down. Relic is written and narrated by me, Maxwell. If you like this episode and want to make me the royal jewel of podcasters, you could do so by rating and reviewing Relic and Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream this podcast. Connect with me on Twitter at LostTreasurePod and email me at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. You can also catch my stream on Twitch by searching Treasure Hunter Maxwell. The adventure continues. <laughs>